Hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Tim Riley, who joins me to discuss his 1988 book, Tell Me Why. Tim's book was one of the first to really drill down and look at the music of the Beatles. When it came out in the 80s, it was surrounded by biographies and memoirs of vastly varying qualities. Tell Me Why was hugely influential. Its impact can be seen most famously on Ian MacDonald's Revolution in the Head. Tim and I discussed the logistics of writing a Beatles book in the mid-80s and how that compares to today, and how he feels about the book and its content now. Tim Riley, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Joe? Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm incredibly well. I'm incredibly pleased to be speaking to you primarily about Tell Me Why, uh, which is a book which I'm sure you'll be glad to be reminded is 33 years old this year. Um, <laughs> but before we get to the book itself, let's go back to the, the, the beginning of, of your kind of Beatle journey. I'm always interested to find out about people's Beatles books experiences. Uh, what were the earliest and kind of standout Beatle books that were on your shelf through your kind of early time with the Beatles through the 70s and the first part of the 80s? The earliest one was uh, Hunter Davies, mm. which I read when I was in middle school. And I remember uh, forming my band in middle school and reading Hunter Davies at the same time and thinking, God, this is just how it happens. I'm reading how it happens and I'm doing it. This is just the coolest thing. And I got it from the public library and I just was, you know, really curious about all things Beatles. I had seen Let It Be by that point and Abbey Road was that was my first one that I actually bought. And I was intrigued by both of those. Abbey Road, because we had stayed at a friend's house while my sister was born. And this older uh, teenager, I think she was in the eighth grade, she had a copy of Come Together. Uh, and the B-side was uh, something. And it was on this Apple label. I remember just being fascinated by this little 45 RPM, just absolutely transfixed by both the look and the sound of it. So when Abbey Road came out, that was a big thing. And then, and then Let It Be came out in the theaters. I can't tell you what a huge impact that movie had on a 10-year-old kid. I mean, I just was, it's a very odd film now, especially looking back. For me, it was, I just found it so, um, so generous that the Beatles, the biggest group in the history of the world, were going to sit down and rehearse and just invite us into rehearsals. I just thought that was the sweetest, most generous. And they sounded really sloppy and messy and they, they didn't sit like the songs were barely there. I don't know. It was so encouraging to a young musician, especially. It was like, yeah, it takes a lot of work to get this stuff off the ground. I just felt like that was a very humble gesture on their part. I was transfixed by that movie. And then at the local theater uh, where I grew up, they had a Saturday and Sunday Beatle weekends. And you could pay $1 and go see Let It Be and Hard Day's Night and Yellow Submarine. And I was there every weekend. And so those texts just became like primary texts for me. And then I sort of started collecting, you know, along the way and then going backwards, getting the Chuck Berry and the Buddy Holly and the stuff that they were pointing me to. And so that's where I started. So I have a very Beatles centric uh, view of rock history. I think it's a very useful frame through which to learn rock history. So let's um, let's look at, at Tell Me Why. Tell us a little bit about the, the genesis of the book. 
there were nowhere near as many as there are now, but there were still a fair few Beatle books around in that kind of mid 80s period. What was the thinking and the aims behind your original idea of writing Tell Me Why? You know, there was Hunter Davies and then there was this book, Beatles Forever by Nicholas Schaffner. That was a very, and that guy, you could say, oh, this guy's really obsessed. And I learned a lot from that book. And then there was a book called uh, Illustrated Record. And I think it was uh, from Illustrated Record that I learned that the UK sequences were different than the American sequences. And that really fascinated me. And I really wanted to figure out why that was so. Um, and it seemed very curious to me that nobody else was picking up on this, that it just like nobody else seemed to care about this. And I started reading, you know, I was getting Rolling Stone magazine and I was reading all the great critics and Lester Bangs and Dave Marsh and Robert Criscow and uh, Greil Marcus. And, you know, Greil Marcus had a big piece on the rock and roll anthology when it came out, 75 or 76, something like that. And I mean, it was a really terrific piece, but I just thought, you know, we need more. Like, why aren't these critics who I admire, why aren't they taking on this big subject? And the subject just seemed to me so all-encompassing and so important. And then um, I got to college and I was studying music in college and I was, you know, still reading and I was still, and everything I was learning in music theory classes was I would go home and I go, yeah, there's a there's a plagal cadence right there. Like that same thing is right there in this pop music of this too. It's hard to describe to my students now, it's hard to describe how severe the chasm was between high culture and low culture when I was growing up. All right. So if you were studying classical music like I was, there was just no uh, no way that you were a rock and roll fan and studying classical piano. It just was like I was a unicorn. But people kept saying, "What? What do you like? Why, how could you do that?" And I would just be like, "Why? Why do I have to choose? Like, what? What is this arbitrary? Like, if you like one, you can't like the other." To me, it seemed like that was one of the key Beatles' accomplishments: was you don't have you don't have to choose. It's all part of the same continuum. But in the time, I remember very, very specifically how rigid those boundaries were. You know, I spent a lot of time like gassing on to my classical music friends. You should listen to this because this is really Penny Lane is in two key areas, and if, you know, like that's a that's not an accident. Like he is deliberately dividing this song up, and that's structured. And I had classical friends who thought I was nuts, and I had rock and roll friends who thought I was nuts. And I don't know, that's just what it was. But it was very clear to me, you know, reading all of the great rock critics at the time and listening and learning about rock history, it was very clear to me this stuff was here to stay. It was not flash in the pan. It was not going to disappear. As it started to get more and more traction, you know, and I saw Bruce Springsteen and I got into Dylan and as it kept expanding, as I kept learning, you know, one of the really exciting things in my lifetime has been watching the style actually grow up and become something bigger than, you know, reflecting mere mere teenage experience, which is already a little, like there was already a lot of patronizing about, well, it's teeny bopper music or it's teenage music. It was music for and about teenagers, and there's actually like a lot of wisdom in some of those teen records, right? That's the very first thing you get to. But then you also like, so when you get to be 30 and 40, so how come we're still listening to teen music? Well, there's actually more there that can be extrapolated and and can work metaphorically. And then you start to watch these rock stars really like, you know, make more adult music and approach more adult subjects. And that was just fascinating to watch as rock and roll grew up 
the hardest thing to convey to my students at Emerson is, you know, the idea that the Stones would be hitting the stage in their 70s was just unthinkable. And yet here we are. And it's like it's not as unusual as it once would have been. But it's also more like it's more exciting because it's like, yeah, it actually we survived. It's not just that we survived. It's that the music really proved itself relevant over and over and over again. Now, there's been there's been trade offs. There's been ways in which it's a Pyrrhic victory. Right. It's gotten mainstream commercial. It's not as subversive as it used to be. A lot of it's not as relevant, but that's a big thing to argue about. But I still think that it's, you know, it's been a force for good. It's been a fascinating story to watch in my lifetime. So when you uh, pitch the book, uh, tell us a little bit about, about that process. As I said earlier, there was certainly less Beatle books in the mid to late 80s than, than there are now. Was it an easy book to was it an easy book to write, first of all, but also maybe more interestingly, was it a, an easy book to get published? Uh, so it's interesting. The story of the book selling, actually, it was relatively easy, but the writing of the book was very difficult. And the the idea of the book was very hard to get across to a lot of people. And a lot of people were really lo- reluctant and dismissive of it. I actually worked on, so I was teaching this course and I, you know, I put together a bibliography for the course and I realized there's a hole here. Like we got too many biographies and we need someone to just take on the music. And that seemed to me like a really good angle. And I developed a, a book proposal and I figured out how to get it to an agent. And I got it to an agent and then I checked him out and then he liked it. And then literally within two weeks of sending him the proposal, he had an editor who wanted to buy it. And that was really thrilling. And that was in my right before I got my master's degree. So I was like, I was on top of the world, right? It was just like an amazing thing. And that was my thunderbolt moment of, oh, this is exactly what I want to do. I get to write about music. And this is going to be my first book. I'm going to write lots of books. That was definitely the feeling I had there. And that was in Rochester in 1985. And um, it was a very modest contract. But to me, it was like the whole world. It was my whole, it was just gigantic. So I moved to New York to write the book, which is not a smart idea, but I got the book written and then they said, okay, this needs a rewrite. And so we rewrote it. So I really had to learn how to write on the ground. It was, I mean, not on the ground, in the air. Like I was in the air with this plane, putting it together. And it was really, really hard. I I had to learn a lot on the fly. And I had done a lot of journalism as a student, but I had no idea how to do a full length book. So I'm very, very grateful for all the really great editing they gave me. And I learned a lot. And but it was really, really hard. You know, all the way through going to Liverpool, talking to people, I had to convince everybody, everyone would say, well, why do we need another book on the Beatles? And this was like, you know, 86 and 87. And people were like, well, what we there's really it's too much. It's too crowded. It's so and I would I would say, but nobody's taken apart the music. The music is really where the story that's where the heart of the story is for me. We don't need another biography. You're right. There's too many biographies. But somebody needs to do interpretive analysis of all this stuff. I mean, it, there's a reason why it is so towering and influential and important. It is, it is very solidly crafted. You need to understand all the different layers of craft that go into this thing. And I would slowly win over people when I started talking about some of the ideas. But mostly there was just a lot of dismissiveness and you know, it's really true. You have to believe in the book more than anybody else because you have to keep winning people over. So that was the case with that. And then it's been very 
ironic what's happened since because there's been a, just like a flood of Beatle books ever since. And we've learned a lot. Like, you know, when I was working on Tell Me Why, Mark Lewis hadn't done his recording sessions book. So we did not know the recording logs. You know, the first thing I had to change in the book was I, I said, Dear Prudence was one of Ringo's finest moments. <laughs> it's actually McCartney playing on Dear Prudence. And I, you know, that was just like an honest, naive mistake to make. And there were, there's a lot of those still in there, but, you know, we just didn't have the scholarship yet. And so hopefully I, I participated in, in advancing some of the scholarship that happened after that. You know, I still maintain that McCartney is doing a really great Ringo impression on Dear Prudence. I think he's got Ringo in his ear and they sort of knew this is how we would want this to sound. It's still a great drum solo. I mean, it's amazing to me that he drums on those two tracks on that record. It's kind of exasperatingly talented, that guy. Let's talk about the some of the music itself. I, I, I reread the book, obviously, in preparation for our conversation today. A few things le- leapt out of me that we'll, we'll talk about. One thing that leapt out at me initially was the real passion and positivity that you write about the early years, the first part of the Beatles career, which ties in a little bit with what you were saying about TV pop and music earlier. The view of that music was was certainly not as positive as the later period when you were writing this in the 80s. Tell us a bit about where you feel the, the magic lies in those early Beatles albums. Uh, and is there a particular album of theirs in the first half of their career that that you think captures that that kind of early electricity the best? So I, I separate the catalog into three periods, this early, middle, and late. And I think one of the fascinating things about the, that catalog, there is development, there is an amplification of a lot of ideas and stuff that happens early on, but the early stuff is just as good as the late stuff. Like, it's not like the early stuff is weak and then they get good in advance. It's like, for me, it's all there in the early stuff. And it's kind of like going back to the Haydn string quartets. It's like, yes, Beethoven took this to the edge of the earth, but it was all there in Haydn. Um, so, and for me, that early Beatles stuff was just always so thrilling and exciting that the, the only way you could write about it was to try and reflect how thrilling the sound was and to, to really try and get your passion down, even while you're doing descriptive stuff. You know, I'm a big fan of that first record. Uh, I think the first record still has a lot to teach us. I'm a big fan of the second record. I'm a big fan of Hard Day's Night, where we start to see a little more polish and it's all original. But I know, you know, one of the great things about early Beatles is those covers and they're busy learning the craft of both writing and playing from their heroes. And you can hear them, you can hear both how much they've learned from Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry and all those people that they're covering, Smokey Robinson and the girl groups. You could also hear how much promise they hear in the music and how much how much further they hear that the music can go. I mean, we'll never be able to be naive and hear it for the first time again. But what I hear in it, going back to it, is that, you know, you can hear the whole history of the music in those early tracks. And there's something just fascinating about how they got there and figured out, oh, this is another springboard. Like, here's another, every one of those things. Anna by Arthur Alexander, it's like, you know, there are worlds in that one song and you can hear them imagining, you know, this is this is a career here in this song. A lot of people were would do songs like that sort of dutifully. And I don't know, there's just so there's something about 
exponential promise that's alive in those early covers that they do. So the covers are very, very interesting. I'm always fascinated and intrigued by their covers. Um, also in the early things, you'll see the Americans get introduced to them differently than the British and the American sequences are different. And there's still, I think, a worthwhile argument to be had. Some of the American critics really double down on these American sequences. Those guys look at the Beatles, what we call the Beatles second album, which has selections from the first and the second and the singles. So she loves who's on there. It's a very tough, aggressive, hard, hard-ass rock and roll record. And that's why they love it. And it's, it does have a certain shape and a certain like thrust that's just really irresistible. It's not to say that it's not, that's not a great record and that a synthetic sort of slapdash. And yet still it, it has sort of an accidental greatness. You have to, I really do think you gain a deeper appreciation of their accomplishment when you look at their own layouts and their own sequences. And this has always been a point of contention with some of the American critics. I'm not saying that you should discount, you should say poo-poo to the American records. I'm saying, you know, you'll gain a greater appreciation of the accomplishment if you understand the original sequences. And the, the Beatles' original sequences, for me, fit some really interesting patterns over the long arc. It's just no, it's not random that they closed that first album, Twisted Shout, Isley Brothers, and the second one with money. And John Lennon singing both of those, that's an assertion of leadership. That's a declaration of, that's a mission statement. That's all of that stuff invested in those final tracks. And I think they're more effective. I think they're greater. I just think they're more artistic. They're more shapely. They're more, and they're worth knowing. And the idea that you just say, oh, that, that doesn't matter. To me, that's just kind of irresponsible. It's kind of saying, well, you know, he cut this early version of the movie and it came out that way over there. But this version that the producers cut over here is far better. It's like, who wants to see the who wants to see the hack producers cut of anything? You know, I'm sorry. It's just like, yes, it, it can have some it can have some value, but you need you really do need to understand this early thing. And people are really stuck on this. And I don't understand why they're stuck on it. I think it's a little bit, uh, I don't know, I'm miffed by it because uh, that argument doesn't seem to carry a lot of weight with a lot of critics. So moving on from that, that early period and coming to the, the middle, as you describe it in the book, you talk about Robber Soul and Revolver being distinctly different from all of the records that they released previous to that. Two kind of questions around that. What do you think inform those changes why do you think they felt the need to develop and expand on that sound when obviously most of the trends at the time maybe would have been for groups to kind of play safer and just release stuff that they knew was commercially successful what informed those changes and do you think it was a conscious change do you think that John and Paul primarily sat down and said right where can we take this or do you think it just kind of came naturally to the pair of them well, I think there's a, I think there's an interesting combination all the way through the Beatles. It's a very interesting combination of self-consciousness and kind of impulsive, primitive, raw energy and creativity that's at play. And that those are very, very interesting tensions that are alive in the music. And I'm one of these people who doesn't really, I'm not as concerned with the intentionality so much as the final product. So, you know, people can have a certain attention around a song, but once the song is produced and released, it does have a life of its own and people project their own meanings and, and uh, feelings onto it and it, they, they sort of lose control over it. And, you know, so the intentions, are, they only get you so far anyway. 
I mean, I think it's useful to know intentions a lot of times. I just don't think it's defining. By the time they finish help, I think there's clearly a reaction setting into going through that experience of help where the soundtrack is just so different than the movie. I mean, what do you call this thing? Whatever is driving them, right, to make this great music, it is pulling them along. There's, there's that great sense of how there is the four of them, and then there's that collective consciousness. There's that muse. And whenever they're playing together, they feel it, and it pulls them along. And I don't think they sat down and said, okay, we want to make Drive My Car like an advanced version of I Feel Fine. I don't think it's that intentional. I think it's we have another great riff here. Let's, let's do it. Let's do it a new way and let's put, let's try and push it as much forward as we can. And then there's all this great, when the creativity comes into play, there's just great sort of release and like all, a, you know, like, let's keep that accident in, or, you know, that, that guitar solo at the beginning of drive my car that everyone tries to figure out and count down. It turns out they weren't even counting it down. It was a tape edit. Right. But we didn't know that for years and years and years. And bands, you know, always trying to wait a second. No, you're coming too soon. No, it's too late. It's too soon. Nobody can count it in. Because it's, a, it's an edit, and that, that edit just, I don't know, why does that work so well? And it, when they heard it, they just said, that's it, boom, go with it. Were they thinking, oh, yes, this will move the album concept further? No, I don't think they were as conscious of all of that stuff that was going on. They were just deeply enmeshed in all the creative juices, and, that, and it just was propelling them forward. So, you know, I don't think they, I don't think they sketched out the long narrative arc of their career, which we have come to think of as kind of holy and precious and beautiful and shapely. I think they just were in the zone so much. I also think that we rely on them a little too much for their own explanations of how some of this stuff happened because they clearly don't remember things very well and they clearly, they clearly didn't have an end site. I mean, so often teaching Sergeant Pepper, it's just really useful to go through the, the studio logs and realized that they had Day in the Life cut in January. So they had three songs, four songs in January of 67. They had When I'm 64, they had Strawberry Fields, and they had Penny Lane. Then they had to give up Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. So Sgt. Pepper starts with Day in the Life and When I'm 64. And Day in the Life, once you cut Day in the Life, everyone is like, yeah, okay, so there's our finale. That is definitely a finale. That can't go anywhere else. Well, so then, you realize what they have done is they, they backwards engineer the whole record from the finale. Now that's a really sophisticated, creative, but they had four songs. It wasn't like, it wasn't like they were going to say, Oh, strawberry fields doesn't fit. You know, they were going to figure out how to make a frame for these songs. And then when they lost two of the songs to the record company, they just said, okay, so let's go from here. I do think there was a lot of, interesting and very, very fast-paced decision-making and creative calls that were happening really on the fly. And I, I would defy anybody to have better memories than those people because of the, the density of activity is so intense. And the drug, the factor in the drugs, and it's just got a recipe for like no memory. But no, I don't think it was a super self-conscious venture all the way through, but I don't think any, any less of it because of that, right? I think if it had been super self-conscious, it would ring sort of weird and artificial to us. So once you say that, you have to sort of back, you backtrack and say, well, but, you know, obviously they were super self-conscious of their image all the way through. They were sublimely um, self-assured. Just to pick up on something that you, you said at the start of that answer there, uh, talking about help. So do you think that 
the film itself and the the album do you think they were i mean it's sort of suggested in in the kind of beatle law that you know john said they were extras in their own film when they did help and it, it's it's just not got quite the same spirit of hard day's night do you think that rubber soul in a way was a bit of a reaction to the film and the album maybe not quite working or or, or, or do you think that's something that we've attached in time well everything i'm about to say is sure conjecture right i wasn't there I do sense my experience of the movie is that they are enjoying themselves not nearly half as much as they enjoy themselves in Hard Day's Night. So there's just clearly like this, they're involved in this larger budget color vehicle that has a, a lot more bells and whistles and is a lot, I don't know, I, I think it's the script. And it's not like a bad script, it's just like, it's not Joe Orton and it's not, it's not as close to home. And they sort of sense themselves inside this synthetic contraption and they also sense in some essential way that they're already beyond it. Like they've like, this is a silly little con- James Bond contraption and we'll have fun with it, but we're, our heads are not, our heads are not in it. And they very clearly did not want to repeat that. I mean, then they had movies lined up. I mean, they, you know, they were under contract to make a movie every year. And one of the big pieces of their rebellion in 66 was no movie. I mean, and they they had enough clout and leverage to just really put their foot down in, in that, and they they did, and they wanted more time off, and they wanted to focus on the studio, and that's that's what they did. So for me, a key defining feature that you see again and again and again is their commitment to the studio, the music, ma- making the records. The records are clearly the focus, and they. I also think that Elvis looms kind of large here. They sort of felt themselves. That was the path Elvis went down, was making those stupid movies. Elvis clearly didn't like the movies. And like Grill Marcus said, you know, it felt like some kind of trick that somebody could play, that they stuck Elvis in all this stupid stuff. So and they didn't want it to be vulnerable to that same showbiz vortex, right? And they understood that their strength really was in the studio. And, you know, the studio that they were pushing, that they were engaged with, that was just far more interesting to them than the filmic side of things. So I, I do think it's a big reaction to, I mean, it's, that's a Hollywood big budget movie. What in 65 was a big budget Hollywood movie. And, you know, to say that it did well, doesn't really say that it was pathetically anywhere near Hard Day's Night. I think we'll be, I think we'll be studying Hard Day's Night for years. And I think help is already sort of, I mean, the other irony of that, of that thread is that when they do, the next movie, they have complete control and it's a complete flop. Magical Mystery Tour. And it's, you know, it's seen as like the, the one dip in their, their aesthetic involvement. Um, and I think they, they kind of knew that. I think, I think Magical Mystery was kind of a giant fuck you to like help and all the professionalism around help. It's interesting, actually, my first introduction to the Beatles was watching Help on TV when they showed it here in the UK in 1992, when I was eight to mark Paul McCartney's 50th birthday. And I don't think it would ever be shown now on British TV. You know, yeah. I just don't, you know, for, for reasons that we don't need to go into now, but I think that that, that certainly shows the change in perception of help in the last, what's that 30 years, you know, it's, it's only going to get, it's only going to go one way. Um, you, you mentioned it earlier on. Let's talk a bit about Sergeant Pepper. Uh, I think the the perception of the record is is just as interesting over time as the record itself. In tell me why you're slightly harsher 
on some of your views on the, the songs that make up Sergeant Pepper. But then when I heard you interviewed in the la- in the last few years, you you said that your view has changed a bit and softened a little bit. What led you to the views that you put in the book? And then at the same time, what led you to a slight kind of about turn on Sergeant Pepper? And how do you feel about it now? It has changed. You know, I'm trying to think of it's changed more than any other single piece of the Beatles. It's least, you know, it's definitely out there in terms of like, I think in Tell Me Why in 1988, I think I can sense myself trying to press against received opinion mm-hmm. because you would get there. You would always get this received opinion that this was a masterpiece and this was. A, and as a young critic, my first time out, I thought, I'm, you know, I'm going to try and really like press against that and point out that I think there's weaknesses here. You know, I think those I think those points are I think they're still valid. But my view of the record as a whole has really changed. It's grown on me over time. I think much more of it today than I ever did. It's a very curious piece of material to think about because it really is like it hinges on day in the life, like without day in the life. It's near great. But with day in the life, it's like it's just sheer masterpiece. It's a very, very interesting way to organize the material. And the process is interesting and the, the final product is interesting. The whole idea of a mock show and that they're not really Beatles, they're this fictional band and you're going to move through the show and the show kind of disappears for a while and then it comes back and then it's all a dream. It's like, it's just such a beautiful way to organize a group of songs. The tonal shift at the very end is so radical i mean there's you play i keep playing it in my classes and you know you can hear a pin drop as that giant chord fades it is and it is very ominous it is like it is not cheery it is deeply melancholic and the tone could not be further from lucy in the sky i just think it's a fascinating sort of manipulation of the listener taking them to different spaces and then kind of saying okay so so what it, it just still has great resonance in our time. It really does capture, we're so technologically advanced and yet we're still so, so afraid. We're so hollowed out. We're so desperate for connection. We're so, life is still so, such a colossal mystery and sometimes so depressing to look, it's so depressing to look at the void. So I think they're big ideas. I think they're the, the poetry on the record is just majestic. And the day in the life as a collaboration between Paul McCartney and John Lennon, I mean, it's just, it's just a sublime piece of collaboration. Paul McCartney parachuting down into the middle of a John Lennon song. And then he says, oh, I went into a dream. And then it's like, does John wake up? And wh- who is that singing that ah? Like, it's, it could be either of them. It could be. I think it's one turning into the other. And then you're like, well, is John just have a dream or is he waking up or what? And then you realize, oh, no, it's totally ambiguous. So is John dreaming Paul or is Paul dreaming John? That idea, I just think, is just the essence of that whole collaboration. You don't know where one stops and one picks up. They are dreaming each other in this super creative way. And it's just this perfect metaphor for why they could be so different and still somehow joined at the, at the heart. Just a fantastic piece of work. Now, the attitudes about Pepper through history have changed a lot. I mean, I would really give a lot to go back and hear Pepper for the first time in its context of the summer of 67. I think that would be fascinating. 
plain out of reach for most of us. And I think hearing it the first time and hearing it over and over and over again in those early weeks must have been absolutely fascinating and thrilling in ways that you knew, oh, it's going to take years to catch up with this record. Like this record just has so much to tell us. And we, there's, it's going to be great to go listen to this record in a year, two years and five years. I think that feeling must have been very, very thrilling at the time. And I, I think there's a problem when you reach a career peak and everyone says, okay, you're artists now, that's a masterpiece. And then nobody listens to it. Nobody writes about it. It's, you know, it's just like it's a received masterpiece. People still, you know, I'll put the lyrics of a day in the life and students will still go, oh, that's the, what's, that's the, you know, it's like nobody's looked at the lyric. You know, to me, that's just fascinating that they can be so universal and so uh, beloved. And so we've internalized everything, but we, we still need to go over the lyric again and talk about what's going on there. What are the holes? What are the holes? And you'll get all kinds of weird stuff with the holes, right? And then you take them to the newspaper article and you show them the holes of potholes. It's like, whoa, wait a second. Why is he putting potholes in the fourth verse? Like that just has no, you know, it really does. It's, it's just still really challenging and very, very interesting to meditate on. And I love teaching that stuff. So yeah, I've, my thoughts have changed about it over the years. I used to be really hard on the Within You, Without You. It's held up a lot better than I expected. I think the, the arrangement has really uh, helped. I mean, it's really helped me stay with the song over the years. Patti Smith's cover of the song, I have to say, was very, very influential. and really made me hear the song differently. And if you don't know that Patti Smith cover, it's great. And so that, And that's kind of a fun way to spend time with the music is to you know, is to let it marinate and you sort of shift around, your mind shifts around and then you see other people and they hear it this way and you read more and you sort of, you sort of evolve in your understanding and your appreciation of things. And that's a, that's a fun way to, to relate to the music, I find. You know, I think the whole Pepper question, <laughs> dilemma, conundrum is really, is really fascinating. Um, but I don't regret planting my flag with Revolver. I mean, I think Revolver... If you're going to argue about it, Revolver does have no weak tracks. And George has three tracks on Revolver. So I don't have any regrets about sort of taking that stand. But I don't also, I don't feel funny about changing my opinion about things. You know, people misunderstand criticism. They misperceive criticism. You know, you're, we're making a polemical argument. We're saying Revolver is the greatest. We're giving our reasons. You don't have to agree with us. Like, don't, just because I'm saying it, I'm trying to persuade you. This I feel really strongly about this. But if it doesn't float your boat, if it's not for you, like, I don't, that's fine. Like, I'm not, like, people just have this weird idea about critics that we're, we're really invested in finding people who agree with us. Yeah, that's not why I do it. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the individual Beatles. Um, always an interesting topic for everyone because it's, it's rare that you get a group where the individuals are as interesting as the the group itself did your view of any of the four of them kind of change from the writing of the book did you relate or admire or uh, get drawn to any of the four of them in particular whilst writing the book and really kind of burrowing down into the music so the first thing to say is yes i pretty much in the john camp uh i have more respect for mccartney than a lot of people seem to think I suppose it's worth saying, I started out as a Paul guy. I thought Paul and Let It Be 
I thought he was like, well, he's the responsible one. He's trying to kick them into gear. He's trying to get some decent takes out of them. Later on, I start, you can see Paul Moore is like, oh, he's just so annoying. So, you know, I had that shift early on. But once I went into the John camp by about Walls and Bridges, I don't know. I think that's a very natural arc. And I don't really have a lot against Paul, really. George, I always thought was kid brotherly and, you know, a fascinating thread to watch because his writing just gets, by the time the White Album comes, he's got like great material and it's really fun to watch him grow. But I, I never thought he should sing, you know, and he should only sing one or two songs an album. And so his solo career is really problematic for me. The perception of George at the time of the Beatles, this is something I try and get at in the Lennon biography, is that the way things seemed at the time and the way they look now, right? Those are, those are very interesting angles to sort of juxtapose. And George at the time was very much in the shadow and he has grown. His, the persona of George has grown so much in the public mind since the Beatles and since his death. Um, I find that really curious. I don't have anything against this guy. I just think if you're in a band with Paul and John, you let Paul and John do all the singing. I mean, I don't. Uh, I, and and he did. I mean, this is the this is the thing that people don't get about George, and I think is great. He's genuinely a humble guy. He is not a lead guitarist who's interested in proving what a great lead guitarist he is every second of the day. He's sincerely out to serve the song, just like Ringo. So he's like, where's my space in the song? Here's my space. I'll make the most of the space, and then I'll back off. I mean, that is, that is the ideal lead guitarist. McCartney, I think, is a very, very special case because, you know, when Lennon dies, I think he is really in this impossible position. I don't think it's fair. From that perspective, I think he has handled himself about as beautifully as anybody could. If your partner dies and then you live an extra 50 years or whatever it is, his burden is kind of unimaginable. And I don't think he gets enough credit for it. I think he's very wise about how he just has kept a lot of secrets and been and, and honored uh, Lennon's legacy and put up with all this crap about, you know, Lennon was the key guy. And some people think that's how I, I, you know, I think the partnership is the key thing. I don't think it's one or the other. It's definitely a partnership. So yeah, that's all interesting to go into and explore. I, you know, I, I wish Ringo would get more credit always. I think Ringo is sublime. And when I wrote about Plastic Ono Band, I think, you know, I mean, I think that's, I think it's a premier rock drumming record the sound of those drums, it's like post Beatle Nirvana, that drummer. I don't think he ever will get enough credit, except from drummers. And if you talk to serious drummers, they will give him credit because they understand. And it's not just about feel. It's, it's much more than that. So, yeah, I, you know, I went in with certain prejudice. I'll tell you, writing the Lennon biography was much more of a head turner. And a, like he had been a hero of mine for a long time. And once I wrote the biography, not a hero, definitely not a hero anymore. And I don't know if that's just like what, what you go through as a biographer, sort of like you get really intimate with the subject and you realize, oh, there's, I learned a lot of things that, you know, I didn't know and that I wind up feeling really bad for him. I mean, I, with Lennon, I sort of feel like, I, you know, I can't believe he did as well as he did. Kind of unbelievable to think where he came from and what he accomplished and how he kept writing through all of that. I mean, he's deeply depressed and heavily self-medicating by late 64, early 65. And is that way for another five or six years. And the stuff he produces in that period is some of his best stuff. 
I think it's kind of phenomenal. Okay, well, to kind of move to the the final part of our our conversation, um, so just a few questions around the book to kind of conclude. So, in two thousand and two, uh, you came back to tell me why. What led you to go back to rewriting it at, at that point? And to kind of conclude, the original book, I think, had a huge influence over many other Beatle books that, that came after it. Primarily, of course, the late, great Ian MacDonald's Revolution in the Head. How did that make you feel? And how, how do you feel about the book in 2021? So uh, the couple of publishers came and said they wanted to do a second edition. And I was thrilled. They wanted a, a new afterward. And I thought this is a perfect time to update it because it was just after the anthology, I think, right? So, mm. and I wanted to get my thoughts on the anthology in there, and I wanted to make the corrections that the first edition had, et cetera. So as a writer, you're always jazzed when a publisher says, hey, let's do a new edition, you know, that's great. And I was happy to, to do the afterward in that, and it was, so that was very satisfying. And the, the book is still in print, is still kind of just amazing. The effect it's had on other writers. Uh, I love Ian McDonald's book. I adore that book. I think that guy was a great thinker, a great writer, very passionate about the Beatles. I'm a little chagrined he didn't like my book so much, but, you know, he gets his opinion. Uh, and uh, I hope that, you know, I hope that I had influenced him or inspired him in some way. I think his approach is, you know, very, very uh, solid and very you know, very worthwhile. I would encourage anyone to read that book. I think the other book for me that stands out is Devin McKinney's book, Magic Circles. Oh my God, that guy's writing is just astounding. And if anybody knows that book, you have to read his Henry Fonda biography, which if anything is an even better book than his Beatle book, and nobody knows it, but that Henry Fonda biography is, it's called A Man Who Saw a Ghost. It's an absolutely thrilling book for a writer because he's just, he's at the peak of his form there. And, you know, I think Magic Circle is just uh, just a phenomenal book. So if I had any influence on those two books, both of those books, I just think are flawless. I would still like to, you know, I would still like to see some of the bigger voices in rock criticism write more about the Beatles. Uh, Grill Marcus never writing a Beatle book to me. That's just a crime. That's just a crime. The guy has so many ideas and so many of his ideas about the Beatles in that 1980 essay are so influential and so worthwhile. And so I want him to unpack all of those ideas. I understand how intimidating the Beatles are. I really do. They're hard to write about. There's just a lot there and it's hard to really get at it and put it into words. What's so great about them, but it's very satisfying to write about them. And I think when an artist, when they inspire lots of great writing, I think that's an excellent sign. I had no doubt that Tell Me Why had the potential to be like an important piece of the literature because I, I knew that nobody had written about the music. And Wilfred Mellers is, you know, he's kind of a, an eccentric old duck. And, but I don't really think he got to the core of it. I think it was important for him. I think Twilight of the Gods is an important read, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's primary piece in understanding the Beatles. But I could, I mean, he was, he was influential. He was a musicologist who said, okay, I, you know, and he made the subject approachable. I'm just grateful that it's still in print, you know, that because there's a lot of really great books that get lost to history and that, that uh, go invisible. I did not have any idea that I'd wind up writing two more books. That was as surprising to me as anybody. And they were kind of accidents, both of them and happy accidents. I was 
I was really surprised when, because I thought, oh, who wants to spend a whole other book on the Beatles? I was really surprised how much fun I had spending more time and learning and thinking and coming up with new ideas. And I hope that if people read the two later books, uh, the Lenin biography and what goes on, there's not too much repetition that I'm not just sort of sponging off myself. I think there's a lot of fresh original material in there. And I, you know, I think that's another really great sign of great art is that it's, you know, it'll provoke like lots of thought and more than one book. Well, Tim, this has been a really fascinating hour or so. Uh, thank you for delving back into your uh, memory to talk about uh, Tell Me Why. Along with everyone else, we'll, we'll look forward to reading your view about Let It Be. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Joe. I had a blast.